Fox Austin. How are you guys doing this morning? You good? Awesome. Hey, take a seat. And when you do, shake somebody's hand, give them a fist bump, a high five. Tell them you have prayed all week that you would get to sit by them this morning. Daylight savings. I preached my first message at 8.30, which to me was 6.30. It went swimmingly, let me tell you. Six cups of coffee later, I'm ready for the 10 o'clock. Um, hey, show of hands real quick. I know Doug did this already. First time here, awesome. Hey, you are in the right place, okay? Um, I love your pastors. I love this church. And what I love about this place is really, we want you to experience God. Uh, we don't want anything from you except your credit card information on the way out. So we'll give you an opportunity to drop that off. I uh, got to eat. You know what I'm saying? No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> Preachers and sneakers guy, right? Like, uh, no, but uh, hey, we're glad you're here. And, and genuinely, uh, I don't know if it's your first time in church or maybe your first time back in a while, uh, but all I'm asking you to do is consider what I have to say today. Um, maybe it's true. Maybe there's a God who knows your name, who loves you, who wants nothing from you because you can do nothing for him, but wants to give you life um, and an opportunity for a fresh start. I'm well aware that there are people in this room that probably see the world very much differently than I do, uh, but I wanna unapologetically talk about Jesus this morning because I truly believe that he is the most fantastic and amazing person that ever stepped foot on this earth. And I'll take it a step further and say, I believe he's more than a person. I believe that he's actually God come to bring us back into a relationship with God. And so that's gonna be the heartbeat and the focus of uh, what we talk about this morning. And um, like, I, like Doug said, we're good friends. Uh, I, I'm back in uh, Denver pastoring our young adults. We meet every Thursday, seven o'clock, 5810 West Alameda. If you find yourself in Denver on a Thursday night, now you know where to go. Come and say hi. Uh, my wife and I also run our internship program, so I don't know if there's any UT people, or I'm not really sure if there, what other colleges are around here, but if you graduate school and you're looking for something to do, sign up for the internship. Move to Denver, it'll be the best year of your life, and then come back here and help them build this thing. Deal? Okay, one of us has a deal over here. I'm holding you to it. You guys still a little tired? Will you help me this morning? Will you give me a little energy and, and let me know if I'm doing okay? Okay, awesome, thank you. Hey, we have been in a series called Attacking Anxiety, and uh, I'm gonna recap real quick the past four weeks. The first two weeks, Doug kicked us off with some messages called Taking Our Minds Back and Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And you guys remember he had that little snake that attached to his hand? That was pretty awesome, right? Awesome illustration. I'm not an illustration guy. When I try them, it's awkward. So for your all's sake, I will not give you an illustration like that. Um, but I remember this little phrase, of course, that Doug always said. And as I was getting in my rental car driving here, I got off the wrong exit and I said, of course, of course I did. And then Doug's face just like popped into my head. So I'm like, thanks, Doug, for that. I will always think of you when I'm frustrated now. So... <laughs> A couple weeks ago, Ryan uh, talked about a plan for peace, which was such an amazing message. And last week, you guys had a panel of incredible professionals up here to discuss mental health, anxiety, and depression. And uh, this week, we are going to talk about the voices that we allow in our head, the voices 
in our heads. So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna dive right in. Jesus, thank you for an opportunity to meet, to talk about you. God, this issue of mental health, anxiety, depression is one of the most prevalent things in our world right now. And so we don't take it lightly, but here's what we do believe. We believe professionals are amazing and they're necessary. We believe that books and resources are amazing and necessary, but we believe that true healing and freedom is, is founded on you. And so God, will you give us the foundation for peace, which is a person named Jesus today. We love you. It's in your name we pray. And everybody said, amen and amen. Well, hey, I am a, I'm 33 years old, a dad of two, a two-year-old and a six-month-old. The uh, six-month-old will be here at the next service. The two-year-old is with her grandparents because if we brought her, you guys wouldn't be paying attention. She'd be running and screaming and grabbing things and pulling hair. And um, yeah, even back in kids. Like, uh, I don't know if you guys have it, but in Denver, we have these little numbers that pop up when your kid's like going insane. And Aaron and I just know, hey, give us 10 minutes and we'll be running back to kids to, uh, to grab our child. Um, but I'm 33, turning 34. For some of you, that might be young still. For some of you, that might be a little older. I'm at the age where I wake up with random aches and pains. Um, thank you, CrossFit. Uh, for, you know, I jumped on the CrossFit train before anybody knew how to do CrossFit. And so my shoulders and knees are thanking me a couple years later. Um, but no, uh, as I get older, I'm, I'm becoming more aware of this, of this subject, uh, this, this idea of internal narrative how everybody in this room subconsciously has this internal narrative that you play for yourself all the time. It's the stories that we tell ourselves from our accumulated experiences. And it's, it's kind of the thing that dictates our perception of life. Doug uh, brought up this statistic a couple weeks ago, but I, I, I fact-checked him because I wanted to use it myself. And um, it's true. The average person has anywhere from 12,000 to 60,000 thoughts in a given day, and 80% of them are negative, right? And the reason that's such an important statistic is because psychologists and, and more and more studies will show that the things that you hear, the things that you ingest, start to determine the, the thoughts that you have, the way that you think. And the way that you think lays the foundation for what you believe, and what you believe in turn uh, determines how you interact with the world, right? What you believe will determine the actions that you take in this life. And when I became a dad, this idea of internal narrative never became more important to me. Uh, my, my two girls, you know, we live in a world with uh, TikTok and Instagram, and there is this goal, this narrative. At first, it was just like advertising, like, hey, we're going to show you a bunch of things because we want you to buy them. But now we have like social media can be used to like push ideas and push thoughts. And so my wife and I are very intentional about determining the internal narrative for our daughters. And so like every morning when we wake up, we're like, hey, you are incredibly intelligent. You are so beautiful. You're the most beautiful person I think I've ever seen in my entire life. You are so kind. My, my daughter's names are Ezra and Ari. And we're like, Ezra, did you know that you are so kind? And she'll just look at us. And sometimes she's like, yeah. And other times she's like, no, I'm not kind. I'm Ezra. And we're like, all right, we'll, we'll figure that out. 
But I'm not gonna let the world or any, anything else, TikTok, I'm not gonna let Facebook, Zuckerberg, whoever, like determine my child's inner narrative. I'm gonna be the person that gives them their inner narrative. So all the time in the morning, I'm like, hey, you're beautiful, you're smart, you're capable, you're a leader. People like what you have to say. People listen to you. You're gonna make a difference in this world. We have a little bedtime routine where literally since my daughter came home from the hospital, I've sang this little song to her just affirming how smart she is, how kind she is. Um, right before she goes to bed, I want those to be the first words she hears and the last she, she hears as she's going to bed. I believe so strongly in this idea of internal narrative, of the power of the language that we hear and the words that are spoken to us and over us have such a power and weight in our lives that they can actually dictate and determine our thoughts, our beliefs, and our actions. And there's a story in the Bible in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 18 that I think does this incredible job of illustrating the power of language and illustrating the power of words. When we find ourselves in 2 Kings 18, a lot of stuff has happened in the Bible up to this point. The kingdom of Israel, God's people, have actually split into two. Uh, Israel, the, the people that kept the name Israel is this northern kingdom, and this other people named Judah is this southern kingdom. And the story of First and 2 Kings, honestly, is like the story of humanity. Like, there's some people that do a really great job leading God's people and other people that are just terrible. And the Bible's not uh, too cute or, or mince as words. It's like, this is a king, and he was a great king, and this king was awful. This king was amazing and served the Lord. This king sucked. You know what I mean? Like, I love just how honest and frank the Bible is. But when we find ourselves in our story in 2 Kings 18, we meet King Hezekiah, who is a good king. He actually does a lot of amazing things. And uh, back in the Old Testament, God uses other nations and other kingdoms to continue to draw his people back to them. A lot of times in the Old Testament, God's people will be in a season of like success and they'll have a lot of money and a lot of food and they'll be conquering lands and then they get kind of cocky and confident how most of us do when we're doing good, right? Like we, we kind of forget about God when life is doing great, but then the second we face opposition, we're like, God, where are you, right? And God knows this about like the human soul and so he'll use like other countries and other nations to like remind his people like, hey, I'm here and you need me, right? So in uh, 2 Kings 18, we meet a guy named Hezekiah, and he's a good king. But there's a bad king, uh, the king of Assyria, and his name is Sennacherib, right? Thanks, Mom, for that one. Cool. Like, Sennacherib. You, like, fail the spelling bee, and they're just, like, asking you your own name, right? So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, he, he's conquering all this territory. It's an empire, and he's, he's conquering parts of uh, northern Israel, and I think he's conquered all of northern Israel, and he's moving down south. And the Bible says that he's conquering the fortified cities of Judah. And back then, fortified cities were just cities literally made to like stave off armies until they get to the capital. But he's just rolled through those, no problem. And he gets to Jerusalem, the capital of Judah and the capital of Israel, the nation as a whole. And, and this is kind of where our story takes place, where Sennacherib and his cronies, his, his men, which I don't even try to pronounce their names for you guys, because if you thought Sennacherib was bad, some of his cronies are like even worse. And so, but we see Sennacherib, the evil king, have a confrontation with Hezekiah, the good king, at the wall of Jerusalem. And it's a very, very interesting story about the power of narrative and the power of words that we're about to read. And so 2 Kings 18, 
Um, for your sake and my sake, this is a mini summary of 2 Kings 18. Um, I'm gonna just take some verses and kind of read them for you. I'm not doing that to take them out of context and fit a story. I would encourage you, go home, read 2 Kings 18 and 19. You can fact check me on all of this. I just thought you'd enjoy me talking a little bit more than reading for 25 straight minutes. So here we go. 2 Kings 18 says this. It says the field commander, which is the crony of Sennacherib, bad guy, field, field commander, said to them, hey, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you boasting, this confidence of yours? You say that you have the counsels and the might for war. So Hezekiah is trying to uh, avoid war and, and, and go to war and not bow to Assyria. He says, but you say you have the counsel to do this, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you would rebel against me? Come now and make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you could even put riders on them, a.k.a. you don't have an army. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without a word from the Lord? If you have your Bibles, circle that or highlight that. It's, we're going to come back to that in a minute. He says, the Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Hezekiah's men said to the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of all the people on the wall. But the bad guy, the commander replied, was it only to your master and to you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people also sitting on the wall who like you will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine. Gross, right? Like, Okay, it's 10 in the morning, man. Can you not talk like that? He um, says this, And the commander stood and called out in Hebrew. That's important. He called out in Hebrew and he said, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. And so we see something very interesting taking place in this story. The king of Assyria is taking his army and he's trying to eliminate the people of Israel. And he's trying to conquer uh, the capital city of Judah, which is Jerusalem. And he's honestly sort of trying to avoid conflict. Because when you read 2 Kings 18 and 19, you'll see that this isn't the only war he's fighting. He's fighting like 10 different wars at the same time. And so he's really trying to use intimidation to get Israel, to get Judah and Hezekiah to just sort of bow down and, and give over so he doesn't have to fight this. But he sends his little cronies to the wall and he basically is threatening them in hopes that people's hearts would be afraid and that they would just bow and they could avoid conflict. And something very interesting happens. It's a very interesting tactic that Assyria uses in the confrontation at the wall of Jerusalem. And I want to go back to 2 Kings 18, 26 and 28, and it says this. They're having this confrontation, and Hezekiah's men say this. Please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But because he's a bad guy, like all bad guys do, he doesn't listen. And it says, then the commander stood and called in Hebrew. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, isn't it interesting that one of the tactics of the enemy was to speak the Israelites' native language, right? 
Isn't it interesting that one of the tactics of war was to speak the Israelites' native language. And it got me thinking, man, how often does the enemy know how to speak my native language, right? I'm a pastor of 20-somethings, and uh, all the time, after young adults, I have people come up to me, and they're like, man, I'm going through this, and this relationship happened, and then it broke up, and I'm low on finances, and I feel like I'm flunking out of school. Connor, can I just tell you, it honestly feels like everything I'm going through in life, every obstacle, every opposition is just custom-made for me. And I'm like, honestly, I wouldn't have believed it at first, but as I'm reading and studying this story, it's kind of like, You know why it feels that way? Because sometimes it's true. The enemy knows how to speak your personal language. Don't you find it amazing that anytime you're struggling with finances, your car breaks down, right? Like, is that just me? I mean, granted, I know that I drive a 2001 Honda Civic, so some of you are like, buddy, that's a little self-inflicted, but... Anytime finances are tight, it's like my car dies. Like, awesome, cool. Anybody ever feel lonely and then you check social media and you see that just so happens every one of your friends decided to get together this weekend, but you never got a text or a phone call, right? Like, doesn't it feel like in some moments the enemy knows how to speak your personal language? Like being a pastor of young adults and like young professionals, like, I have so many people, like, relationships is one of, like, the biggest things that we talk about all the time. And, like, they, like, I have so many people, this situation happened literally where some girl was like, I was in love with this guy, and he ended up marrying my frenemy. You know, that person that you're, like, kind of cordial with, you'll smile and wave in the lobby, and then you're like, don't, don't get a flat tire on the way home, you freaking jerk. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, isn't it amazing that it feels like the enemy customizes attacks just for you. And I think it's because, like, we can learn from this story, the enemy knows how to speak your language, right? And can I be honest with you guys for a second? We are in a series called Attacking Anxiety, and I don't have anxiety. I know that sounds weird to say because that's what the series is titled, but I don't struggle with anxiety. But I do struggle with comparison, right? I struggle with comparison. I do, I do struggle with shame. The enemy knows, it might not be anxiety, but the enemy knows how to speak my language. And it seems so stupid, but as a pastor, there's so many times where I'll get off this stage and I'm like, did I do good enough? Did they laugh enough? Like, I, I, like, I, I, I listened to this speaker, and when he said this, people laughed, and then I said it, and nobody laughed. Like, you know what I mean? Or I'm like, or, or, or I lead our young adults, and I lead our internship, and I'm like, am I a good enough leader? Because when this guy leads a meeting, I just, I'm ready to run through a brick wall. And like, when I lead a meeting, sometimes people walk out, and they're like, what was he talking about? Like, what are we supposed to be doing right now? Like, am I as good as this person? I don't have anxiety, but I do really wrestle with comparison. I wrestle with shame. There's so many times before I walk up on a stage where I just think to myself, like, if these people could only see my rap sheet and, like, a history of the things that not only did I used to struggle with, but I still struggle with, would anybody want to even listen to a single word I have to say? Isn't it amazing how the enemy can just try to get you to disqualify yourself like all the time for the things that you feel like God has called you to do? 
It's amazing that the enemy knows how to speak your language. One of the things I wrestle with often is this feeling of leading a young adult ministry, leading an internship, helping out in our church however I can, but then having a wife at home and two beautiful girls. And, and the enemy constantly is sort of whispering in my ear like, hey, your girls are gonna grow up one day and feel like you chose the church over them. It is such a common story for pastors that their kids will grow up and want nothing to do with church because they feel like their mom and their dad gave everything to a congregation and nothing to them back at home. And I'm so, I don't wanna say fearful, but it is the biggest thing in the back of my mind of I never, ever want my child to feel like I chose church over them. And so I mean this by the, like from the depths of my heart. If I ever, ever heard that one time, I'm quitting the next day. Like, love you guys, love Red Rocks, love my daughters more, and I hope that's okay. You know what I mean? But isn't it amazing that the enemy knows how to speak your language? And here's something that's even more interesting. And he knows how to do it so well. And he's so deceptive that he can even begin to get us to believe that the lies that he whispers in our ear are actually from God. 2 Kings 18, 25, in this confrontation, it says this. The, the little crony from Assyria says this. He says, the Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. That was a lie. The Lord never said anything to this guy. God never told him to march against this country and destroy it. That was an absolute lie. And the Bible says in John chapter eight that when the enemy lies, he actually speaks his own native language. And he's so good at whispering lies and speaking lies that the goal is so that he hopes to convince you that what you're walking through, what you're going through, what you're struggling with was actually sent by God himself. Maybe God does want me to be sick because I've been a bad person in my past and I'm too old to just get my life together. Like I, I deserve this. This is probably from God. Maybe God wants me to be lonely because he knows what I've struggled with in my past he knows what I look at on screens when nobody else is around. I don't deserve a relationship. Maybe this is from God. God, God wants me to be lonely. He's so good at whispering things in your language that the goal is to convince you that it's from God himself. But I wanna jump back to our story. Assyria is coming to conquer Judah. There's a confrontation at the wall where the enemy uses a tactic of speaking Israel's own language to try to instill fear and anxiety. And King Hezekiah has a choice. What is he gonna do? What is he gonna do when the enemy is in his face, at his front door, taunting him, challenging him in his own language, in front of his own people? 2 Kings 19 says this, it says, Hezekiah, when he heard all this, tore his clothes, put on a sackcloth, and went to the temple of the Lord. Can I tell you, what you do, and more specifically, where you go, when the enemy is in your head, speaking things, trying to provoke you, will literally be the thing that determines whether you stand in this moment 
or whether you fold. When the enemy was in King Hezekiah's face, taunting him, speaking things that honestly were true. Like if you go, if you go into 2 Kings and read this story, this little crony like goes through all the different nations that Assyria has just rolled over. He literally lists all the different gods that this nation has just plowed through. And he's like, oh, do you think this country didn't think their God would deliver them? And guess what? Conquered them. Oh, you think this God was going to like deliver this country? Guess what? Conquered them. What do you think your situation is any different, right? So Hezekiah hears this. And can I tell you, the enemy actually had a proven track record. At, At this situation, he wasn't lying. We have defeated anyone who has stood in our path. And Hezekiah goes and gets into the presence of God. Because where you run when the enemy is confronting you will be the thing that determines whether you stand or whether you fall. And can I tell you that the enemy would love nothing more than for you to run to a coping mechanism than to run to the one who can deliver you? Where do you run when the enemy's speaking your language and is in your head? Where do you run when you're lonely and you don't have a date and, and you just feel this pressure that you need to get married and that your clock is ticking or whatever? Do you run to pornography? Where do you run when your job is stressful and maybe your relationships aren't where they want to be? Do you go out and get hammered and take some drugs, take some medication? Or maybe it's not that crazy, right? Like we always, pastors, we like to use like the most wildest extremes. Do you run to Netflix? when life is, is hard and you can't figure things out, right? Are you like me? Do you, do you grab a pint of Ben and Jerry's and binge watch Selling Sunset? Like, <laughs> I have no interest in Gucci and high-end real estate. I mean, I wouldn't mind a house, if I'm being honest. So hook a brother up. But uh, you know what I mean? Where do you run when the enemy's in your face? Because can I tell you that a lot of us run to things that aren't necessarily sinful, but they're not saving. And the enemy would love absolutely nothing more than for you to spend your whole life running to a thing that will have you cope, but not have you heal. Nothing wrong with selling sunset. Sell those homes, ladies, sell them. (laughs) Wear your outfit, get your eyelash extensions. And y'all, some of them are like eight feet long. Like they got eyelashes for days, let me tell you. They look like diving boards, you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) but where you run where you run will determine whether you cope or whether you heal and listen anxiety begets anxiety depression begets depression numbing yourself begets numbing yourself and what happens is we find these things that are good they're not bad they're not a sin God's not looking down at you saying Selling sunset yet again. (laughs) See you at the altar Sunday. You know what I mean? But there's no healing in that. There's no healing. There's only numbness. Do you want to heal or do you want to cope? And what I love about King Hezekiah's example is he could have run to a lot of different places. He could have run to the armory and been like, all right, boys, we got this little crony from a guy named Seneca something. You know what I mean? And uh, he's talking crap, literally, he says crap, like, uh, in his threats, let's suit up and let's go fight this thing, right? Like, as a guy with daughters, like, that's kind of my, like, initial, like, I'm going to buck up and be like, oh, you're trying to come into my house? I don't think so, right? Hezekiah could have run to a lot of different places. 
But he ran to the temple, which was a representation of the presence of the Lord. And Ben, you guys can make your way on up. And what I love about this story is that when the enemy is in his face, literally speaking his actual language, which I believe represents a spiritual representation of how the enemy speaks our language, he runs to the house of God. Why would he do something like that? Why wouldn't he prepare for war? Because it's coming. Why wouldn't he talk to his people and turn around and talk to the city and say, don't be afraid, I'm gonna figure this out. No, he runs to God, why? Because the enemy knows how to speak your language, but so does God. God knows how to speak your language. The Bible says that before you were born, God knit you together in your mother's womb. And so Hezekiah knows that there are voices in his head that are trying to determine what he thinks. That Sennacherib and his cronies are trying to determine what Hezekiah believes and if they can shape his thoughts and shape his belief by speaking his language and, and, and flooding him with narrative, then they can get him to turn his back on God to run to something that won't heal him or save him so that he will bow his knee, become part of Assyria and have a mediocre life coping with the regret of not standing for what God has told him to stand for. But he runs to the temple and the Bible says that there the prophet Isaiah came. And in the Old Testament, a prophet literally was the physical representation of the word of God at that time. And the Bible says in uh, 2 Kings chapter 19, five and six, it said this, it said, when King Hezekiah and his officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says. See, in the confrontation at the wall, the crony kept on saying, hear what the king of Assyria says. Hear what the king of Assyria says. Hear what the king who has conquered every other nation says. Hear what this guy has to say. The enemy will always have something to say to you. And it'll always be specific to your situation. It'll always be something that cuts to that deep place that you feel like nobody knows about or you can't share about or only you carry around. The enemy knows how to speak directly to you. That's why we need Isaiah's in our life. That's why we need God's word because the enemy has something to say, but so does God. And they come to the presence of God and Isaiah says, hear the word of the Lord. Here is what God has to say. Can I tell you, this message is so personal to me because over the past couple weeks, if I'll be honest, man, my work has been kicking my butt. Young adults have been kicking my butt. I mean, like, can y'all pray for like your college students, pray for your young professionals. It's not just like some season of life where they're figuring things out. They're figuring a lot of things out. And it's, it's hard. And I'm running this internship and I've got two girls and I've got this beautiful wife. And man, like our home was just stressful. Like we'd open the door and my wife is like, dude, I'm, I'm tired. I like, I need a break. And my kids are just like, ah, like you open our door and just hear like screaming and crying and you smell diapers and like all this different stuff. And I'm driving my 2001 Civic that's breaking down and, and it's snowing, of course, cause it's Denver and I hate snow. Why do you live in Denver? Great question. Ask myself that every day, you know? <laughs> but I'm, 
I'm driving to work one day and I'm breaking down. Genuinely, I'm just crying in my car because I'm like, I'm a failure. I'm failing my ministry. I'm failing my people, my congregation that God's given me to steward. I'm failing the internship. I'm failing my wife. I'm failing my kids. There's just this narrative that I just was hearing over and over and over again that you're not enough, you're not good enough. It requires more than you can give. And I'm crying my eyes out on my way to work and no lie, this old broken down like 1960s Ford F-150. Not like cool that you see in every Nicholas Sparks movie. Like I'm talking, why is this thing on the road? Uh, Ford F-150 comes driving up the road with a giant uh, plywood sign on the front like literally like taking up like half the viewing space of the driver, like, like a bungee corded on the front of this giant truck. And it just says this, God loves you. And it sounds so stupid. But in the moment, I felt like the enemy was just reading my cards and just reading me this narrative of all the things that only God and only he would know about me. He was speaking my language and it was working. It was shaping what I thought and shaping what I believed about God and what God had called me to do and shaping the actions that I was planning on taking. And then I felt like on a stupid truck, on a stupid like cutout thing with spray paint, God loves you. God spoke to me and just reminded me like, hey, I know how to speak your language too. And I'm here for you. And at my word, every knee bows. At my word, every other word falls short because the Bible says that God's word will not return void. The enemy's word can return void if you void it, right? God's word never returns void. Would y'all stand with me for a second? I believe there are people in this room right now, every head bowed, every eye closed, who maybe like me, you don't wrestle with anxiety, but man, you wrestle with something else, right? And can I tell you, you're going through this season of life and you're just like, Connor, man, I'll be honest. It feels like everything I'm going through is custom made just for me. It feels like the enemy is speaking my language. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I wanna pray for you. Yeah, hands everywhere, hands everywhere. Can I remind you, you've run to the right place. You've run to a God who accepts you arms wide open who loved you so much that he wouldn't require anything from you, but just to humbly come to him, who would give his life for you. And can I tell you, he gave us a book of stories of people who have encountered him to encourage us. And that book is our narrative to control what we think. It is God's word for you. And so Jesus, I pray right now for anybody in here that's wrestling with anxiety or depression, that you would be their peace. God, I pray for anybody in this room who's wrestling with comparison. God, that you would affirm that they are more than enough because they are fearfully and wonderfully made. God, for anybody who's wrestling with shame, you take all of the deepest and darkest parts of our heart and you, you bring us new life. God, the enemy may know how to speak, but you speak louder and you speak more clear. And so God, would you remind our hearts and remind our souls and our minds that it is your word we submit to not the word of an enemy, not the word of a friend, but the word of God. And we submit our lives to God's word. Things change. Jesus, we look to you because it's only because of you that we can know God. 
So Jesus, I pray that as we worship you and we sing these words out loud, that this would be the narrative, this would be the declaration that we begin to make over our lives and over our minds, that no matter what we're facing in this world, your story is more true. Your words are more true. The enemy may know how to speak our language, but you know how to do that tenfold. And so God, we, we lay down the throne of our mind and we give it to you. Fill us with your words, fill us with your verbiage, fill us with faith, fill us with hope, fill us with peace. Your word reigns supreme. You, Jesus, reign supreme. It's in your name we pray and everybody said, amen and amen. Red Rocks Austin, let's worship together.